And I just want to read uh, what uh, this uh, person had to say that was actually there. I do not know how to pronounce these names. I don't know what language Palmari is. It's got its own language. I don't know exactly how to pronounce all this stuff, so just bear with me. I'll get close, uh, and you'll, you'll get the object here. I, I thought it was a young man that wrote this, but the more I got to looking at things and looked it up on the Internet, I think this is a young lady, a high school girl, or, or at least maybe in college, uh, that was the one that wrote this. Anyway, her name is Bralulia Raviro. And she uh, is sharing how God taught uh, a first-time missionary group, so her and others, to depend on him. And that's, that's the lesson, right? We want to learn how to depend on God because he's dependable. Well, she writes this. <clears throat> this is back in 1983. In 1983, I was a part of a first-time team of Brazilian young people going to, a plant, going to plant a mission station among the Palmari tribe. I was chosen because I had some training in Palmari, the language, with the Summer Institute of Linguistics. We traveled on a small boat to reach Libre. From there to a small river where the Palmari were, there were no transport boats available for us. We would have to hire a private boat to take us there. We would be first as missionaries to reach this particular village with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only money that our team had that was left to us at this point was a few hundred dollars we had put aside to buy supplies and food for our stay in the jungle that we planned on making in about three months. What do we do, Lord? Should we just uh, wait here until something shows up? I felt I had received Matthew 13:46 from God. It said he went away and sold everything that he had. I questioned, is God saying that we have to use all the money that we have left, this few hundred dollars, and uh, rent a boat? And that was exactly how things went. We couldn't do anything else. We hired the owner of the smallest boat we could find that we could still fit in. The price he charged amounted to the exact figure that we had saved. We set out with food for only a short trip, no kerosene or other supplies. After a five-day trip, we found a man with a large canoe that was available to take us the rest of the way to Manicoa Lake, which is where the Palmari were. We got out of the canoe in front of the first hut. I shouted to the land in my broken Palmari, Ivante, is that you? An old woman answered me from the top. They had their huts built way up high in the trees from the top. And she said, ha, ha, Vante, yes, it's me. She didn't even seem to find that it was strange to hear me, somebody just showed up in a canoe, speaking her language. Well, we all climbed up to that hut, and we sat ceremoniously on the floor. After a good hour of conversation about our trip, she asked what we were there for and what we intended to do. I said, we are missionaries. We want to help you know Jesus, the Son of God. The lady looked at me with a puzzled expression and started shouting for her grandson, Danilo! Come over, Danilo. The missionaries have arrived. Take them to their home. Hmm. Our home, I asked. She pointed to an empty, tall hut nearby. Danilo and I built this hut two summers ago, preparing for your arrival. We heard on the radio about the Creator God and how his son Jesus wants to help us. I said to Danilo, if that is true, he will send us his people so we can build a hut for you. 
We were placed we were placed in our home then, and from that day on we were fed with abundant fish, manioc flour, and jungle fruits. For the whole six months we stayed with the Palmari and we were well taken care of, never needing a cent of money. We applied uh, to the rental of that boat. We had nothing to offer them except ourselves, and it was all that we needed and all they needed. What I want us to see uh, from this is, number one, the power of faith and what God had in mind. I don't think it's any mistake that what it cost them to get there was exactly all they had, so now we get to depend on God. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever been where it takes just everything you have and you don't have anything left? And you give it, and then God cares for you. I think a lot of people have had that happen. There are two things going on here. The faith of people who didn't even know God yet, and the faith of the people that did know God. And I want us to see that both of those were things that were, were just celebrated by them, and that God in heaven blessed for what they did. Uh, there's other stories Sorry, my eyes are watering again. There's other stories about how God works that out and has people prepared before you even get to the mission field, and God's already prepared those people. There's faith on both sides. Well, I want to read a story, a couple of stories here about faith, uh, true things from the Word of God. And if you have your Bible, we're going to turn to chapter 9 of Matthew, and we're at verse 14. We're going to go all the way down to verse 46, now, or 26. This gets really involved here. Because there's lots of stuff going on, as with Jesus' ministry everywhere. Here's what it says. Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can he? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins will burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, Jesus isn't talking about patching your jeans and uh, where you store your wine. He's talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll get to that in a minute. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. So they're walking along the way. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave the girl for she has not died, but is asleep. And they all began laughing at him. Remember, these are professional mourners that only show up when people are dead. They know she's dead, and so he says, no, she's only asleep. They're laughing at him. Apparently, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout the land. And that's where we're going to stop and see what the Lord has for us 
uh, to learn this morning here. <clears throat> there's a lot of things to say so we can understand what's going on in the account. And then there's a lot of things we want to apply to ourselves as well. In verses 14 to 17, what we're going to learn is the presence of Jesus should cause change in the status quo of Jerusalem. Let me bring that up to date a little bit more and say the presence of Jesus should change in the status quo of the church or of the people that go to church in Smith Center. The presence of Jesus should change everything about what we do. Jesus had just spent some time and had a run-in with the Pharisees about the fact that he had eaten with Levi's friends, the sinners and the tax collectors. And you know, we talk about how they were really looked down on in that society. Jesus had uh, been, been at it with the Pharisees who said, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus told them, because they're the ones that need my help. Uh, the righteous don't need my help. And I think that's tongue in cheek. They were not righteous, the Pharisees themselves, but Jesus said, I spend time with sinners, and the other part of the story is because they want to hear what I have to say. He ended that discussion with a command for the Pharisees to go back to the text of Hosea 6.6. Now, that part that he focused on is in verse 13, so let's just review it here. Jesus said to the Pharisees, okay, look, it's the, it's the sick that need a, a physician, not the healthy, okay, got that straight. And he said, you guys put more importance on sacrificial ritual than you do on doing what is right. And he says in verse 13 to the religious leaders of Israel, get it? But go and learn what this means. And now he's quoting Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Then Jesus says, for I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinners. And so he ended with that little lesson, and he said to them, you guys need to go back to the book because you don't understand it, and you're not living it, or you would not have said what you did about me spending time in fellowship with some folks that were unbelievers. The point was that God desires compassion to be more important than performing sacrifice. Now, I want to give that caveat again. God is not saying we shouldn't do what God tells us to do in terms of how we worship and what worship involves, like, like prayer and Bible reading and preaching and things like that. God is not saying you should always just ditch that stuff, but what he is saying is that if you have a chance to be compassionate to somebody, if you have a chance to tell somebody about Jesus or, or uh, show up to a Sunday night church service, you go ahead and show compassion. That's what God really wants you to do. I did not say don't come to Sunday night church. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, that's God's point, and that's what Jesus lived out every day. And we were challenged with the fact, that, is that how I'm living every day? Am I living that way as Jesus wants me to do, showing compassion to people who need to hear the gospel of Christ? All right, now we'll get into verse 14. The disciples of John come to Jesus, and they say, hey, we've noticed your disciples are not fasting. Uh, the Pharisees, we, we all fast, and uh, so do us as disciples of John. So uh, these are people from a friendly, let's say, theological camp. They're not against Jesus. They're for Jesus. They're just following John and his ministry, John the Baptist. And they come and they ask Jesus, hey, why aren't your guys, uh, your disciples, the people following you, why don't they fast? You know, we all fast. It's a spiritual discipline. And fasting was an age-old spiritual discipline. And it's still something that we should be doing today uh, at various times in our life. When we want God to know we're really serious about something we're asking for. And he thought, uh, these guys thought that Jesus' disciples should be doing it. Please note, first of all, that Jesus is not against fasting. And go back to chapter 6, verse 16. 
Jesus teaches, whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say unto you, they have their reward. But now he gives them rules about fasting. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Don't look like you just, you know, crawled out of bed and you're disheveled and, and you're all beat up because you're fasting. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but that your fa- by your Father who is in secret, the Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you openly. Store up your treasures in heaven. And that's his point there. So he's not against fasting, but the disciples are not fasting. But there is a reason why Jesus and his disciples are not doing that now. The disciples of John also mentioned, hey, by the way, the religious leaders of the land, they do the same thing. They're, We're all fasting, but you guys, how come? Jesus steps up to answer the question. Okay? He always has an answer. He does so by giving an illustration of a bridegroom and the attendants of the bridegroom. So we call them the groomsmen. The attendants cannot mourn, which is an element of fasting that it includes, while the bridegroom is in their midst. That would not be proper. Now, I've never been to a wedding where I saw all the groomsmen down, and they're not happy, and they're not having fun, and they, you know, they're just miserable there at the wedding. Uh, I'm sure there's been weddings like that, but I've never seen one. But Jesus said that wouldn't be proper. You're, you're supposed to be happy when the, when the bride, bridegroom is there, okay? And so this is what's going on. The climate around the bridegroom at a wedding is not one of mourning and fasting. It's uh, feasting and joyous. It's rather a time for rejoicing and eating. The reason they don't fast because, is because something is currently uh, critically different between uh, what's going on with the Pharisees and what's going on with Jesus. The king is in their presence. The king is right there. They haven't recognized him. The Pharisees didn't. John's disciples, some of them are recognizing. Some of them are catching on, on to this whole thing. And he's saying the Messiah is with my disciples because I'm the Messiah. The kingdom has been inaugurated. This is not a time for fasting and mourning. But he says, notice, that a day will come when the disciples of Christ, they will return to practice fasting because the bridegroom will be taken away. And so in verse 15, which we're talking about right now, Jesus has predicted his crucifixion with that statement. I'm not going to be here forever. It's not going to be like you think it's going to be where I take over and and smash the Romans and I set up a new world order right now because you've rejected me, he's saying to to the religious leaders and most of the people, and there's a crucifixion coming. And once I'm gone, then my disciples will fast. And by the way, he's still gone, still hasn't come back, and so we also practice fasting. Now verses 16 to 17. Things are not as they have been because Jesus is here. That's what he's saying to them. He illustrates this with two, two different things, two ways. And he uh, started with someone patching a torn piece of clothing. He's basically saying this. What would happen if you took a worn garment, been washed a number of times, it's shrunk and all, all that stuff, and patched it with a new piece of cloth? Well, if you did that, the old garment, when washed, stays the same, but the new patch is going to shrink and then rip another hole, and the hole is going to be worse than the one that they had in the beginning. And so you just don't do that. I remember uh, years ago, uh, not long after well and I got married, I started uh, ripping holes in my jeans at work, and a well patch is probably hundreds, I guess, of uh, pairs of jeans for me. 
and she always used old patches. And I thought, why don't you put something new on there that'll last? And she told me, well, if I do that, it's going to rip it. It's very biblical, right? And uh, I thought, well, I should have thought of that, but I didn't. And I, I, mind you, we did not know in those days uh, that wearing ripped jeans was going to be the rave and the fashion someday. <laughs> we were way fashionable before some of you were even born. But in order not to be prideful, we put patches on our, on our holes in our jeans because the other kids. You know, when I went to school as a kid, if you had holes in your jeans, you were thought to be poor. Your folks couldn't take care of you, and it was, it was kind of shameful and disgraceful. Now, you know, if we'd have saved those, I'd, we'd be rich. We'd sell these. You know, people buy pre-sweated cowboy hats, pre-sweated jeans with holes in them. We were right where we needed to be today, but we weren't here then. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything except you won't forget the shrinking patches on jeans, right? The second illustration is about putting new wine in used old wineskins. Now, the new wine would certainly expand and fizz and ferment and put so much pressure on that old wineskin, which is what they normally would put beverages like that in, and it would, it would eventually burst it. So that new wine is going to be fermenting, and you put a new wineskin bottle there because you don't want that to explode and you lose all the hard work of the wine that you made. And that new skin is able to take the pressure. The old one won't, so you get rid of it. Now, Jesus did not come, he says, to infuse old wineskin with new wine. What on earth is he talking about? You know what he's talking about. He came to move God's work forward, which means necessarily we're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's new wine. In fact, that's one of the symbols, if not the greatest symbol of the church, is the communion table and the, and the wine representing the body of Jesus Christ, the blood that he spilled, that's all new. Before that time, all we had were the blood of bulls and goats. And Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. There's a new wine coming for the new skin, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, he's moving God's work forward, which will necessarily mean that it won't be contained by the Old Testament. I didn't say it was opposed to the Old Testament. I didn't say that at all, but it won't be contained by the Old Testament. We've got to break out of the Old Testament way of doing things, and we want uh, to bring in the New Testament because Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the Old so we can do that. So things are moving forward, and they need to get on board, the religious leaders and others, get on board with this, and that's why the disciples of Jesus are not fasting. What he's saying is that I, I brought something new. I brought what God wanted me to bring. And it's not going to fit the old ways. Do you get that? It's, it would burst them. And that's what it's going to do. I brought the new covenant in my blood. And let's don't forget, God delights in obedience and compassion rather than sacrifice from hearts that don't belong to him, like the, the hearts of the Pharisees in particular. So hopefully, it doesn't say this in the Bible, okay, but hopefully one of John's disciples went back to John and said, hey, we don't have to fast anymore. Well, why not, John says. Well, because the king is here. And, and he's, he's, he's in our midst. And I don't know if anybody told him that or not, but they would need to get with a program. And once Jesus is gone, then they can go back to fasting. People everywhere were missing the point of Jesus, but not all of them. People everywhere were missing the point of Jesus, but not all of them. The next illustrations are just about that. So what I want us to think about is, have I missed anything with Jesus and faith? So in verses 18 and 19, we're introduced to a, a new fellow, 
His name is actually Jairus. He's a synagogue official. And it says, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Okay. We learn here that Jairus, a synagogue official, goes to ask Jesus to raise his daughter from the dead. Now, Mark has a little different view that's a little bit out of step with where Matthew is in terms of the timing. We'll talk about that in a minute. In verse 18, Jairus is this official in a synagogue. We are assuming that it's probably the synagogue in Capernaum that he's talking about. So they would have known this person. Jesus had a hometown base in Capernaum, so he probably knew him. He would have been respected and responsible for the order of the way the events of worship happened in the synagogue. So I just want to read uh, briefly here uh, from the uh, part in Mark, chapter 5, verse 22, where Mark is telling the same story. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, that is Jesus, fell to his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him. All right, somewhere between what Mark recorded and what Matthew recorded, the man's little girl died, right? Mark, uh, the guy says, my daughter's, you know, really close to death. She's going to die here real quick. And uh, then in, in Matthew, it says, my daughter has died. Somewhere in there, while they're talking, some people reported to Jairus, your daughter has, has passed away. Right? It's not a contradiction. It's just a point in the story that each of them were talking about. So this is, this is what Matthew says. She's already dead. So somewhere between the two, this 12-year-old little girl had died. This man, Jairus, he exhibited great faith in Jesus Christ. He believed that if Jesus would come and lay his hand on her, now not quite like the Gentile who said, just give the word, but that Jesus come and lay your hand on her, she would live again and be resurrected. And this is an unusual faith in Israel, not, not as great as what the Gentile did, but it's unusual. And we haven't seen that very often. This is a religious guy, not a Pharisee, but a religious guy. And, he, and he's going to Jesus for help. And in verse 19, without any questions or other questions, Jesus and his disciples get up and they started following Jairus to his home, which uh, many believe was right next to the synagogue. So when Noel and I were there on our trip, uh, they point out we think this is where Jairus' home would have been. Usually it had been right next door. So anyway, it was fun to be there and remember this particular account. Now, he's on his way. Uh, he said he's going to go. And he's going to go. They got up and they followed. But in verse 20, we're introduced to somebody else. And I want you to think about this, this woman. I want you to think about what she did. I want, to, I want you to think about the fact that she got Jesus' attention in the middle of a crowd with people pressing on him as he goes by the hundreds. And the woman who had been suffering, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. No, she didn't ask permission. She didn't uh, say, hey, Jesus, I'm going to touch your uh, cloak here. She just did it. So in verses 20 to 22, Jesus takes time out, time out from what? Raising somebody from the dead to comfort a woman who showed great faith in him. You see what keeps coming up? Faith. And it works out for people. Faith. So in verse 20, on the way to Jairus' home, 
Something happens that stops Jesus in his tracks. He's a man on a mission. He's got a little girl to raise from the dead. She's 12 years old. The family's falling apart. Their daughter's died. But somebody does something that gets his attention and stops him in the middle of a huge crowd. There's a great crowd of people, both Mark and Matthew uh, agree to that, following Jesus, including this very special woman. Uh, she has a hemorrhagic flow of blood from uh, at least a time of 12 years, and she's had this. Uh, she has a copious or heavy discharge of blood from some blood vessels, and no one could get it stopped. Now, I want to go back and forth here just a little bit. Mark chapter 5 again, and uh, read verse 26. Mark 5, 26. This woman had this uh, hemorrhage for 12 years, and in verse 26, and endured much at the hands of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, all her money, and, had, and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. She heard about Jesus, and that's when she decided her little plan, I'm going to sneak up behind him, grab his cloak, and I'll be healed. Uh, she's been through uh, about everything they could put her through. This meant that she could never go and worship because she was unclean. Uh, so if you want to look back briefly to Leviticus chapter uh, 15, uh, just so you understand this, Leviticus 15. These are rules that would uh, talk about uh, things like the menstrual cycle that women go through and any discharge of blood. And in verse 19, it says, when a woman has a discharge, if her discharge is a a, uh, in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. Now, I'm not going to read all the way down through verse 30, but these are the laws of uncleanness. What that means is that there were certain amounts of time every month that a woman could not go and worship in the synagogue or the temple because of the flow of blood. Now, here's a woman who has not been able to go for 12 years because this blood wouldn't quit. Now, does God have something against women or something? No, he doesn't, but he's trying to teach the people in the Old Testament that blood is sacred, blood is holy, and so even when there's bloodletting in some way, and men could have some in a different way, uh, you're not allowed to go and worship until you're clean. And there was a sacrifice for it. What is God saying? He's the one that invented that, right? I mean, it's, it's his idea, but he's also saying, you will hold sacred blood. And you will hold it sacred when you come before me. So I want no discharges of blood in any form or way when you come to worship. And once that's cleared up, then you can come. All he's doing is teaching that there is power in blood, there's life in the blood, and blood is sacred. And that was one way that he taught it. And so uh, this poor lady hasn't been able to go to worship for all this time. And it meant that anyone who touched her, or she touched, was also considered unclean. You and I can imagine that she is one desperate lady trying to get her life back. And this is her plan. And her plan is she would go and touch Jesus, and when she did touch him, she said, I will be well. What's that? That's faith, right? That's faith. There's a huge crowd around Jesus. This isn't going to be easy. She's unclean. Probably most everybody there knows it. And she should not be rubbing shoulders with us. And we don't want to touch her because then we have to be unclean for a certain amount of time. Uh, but she didn't care. She is pushing her way to her only hope. And in my notes, I capitalized hope. That's Jesus. And so she gets the job done in verse 22. And immediately Jesus turns around, 
perceiving that the power of the Holy Spirit of God has gone out of him, and he wants to know who is it that touched him. I want to read that again also from uh, Mark, and it'll be verses 27 to 30. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garment, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus perceived in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth and uh, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garment? Who touched me? Jesus wants to know. There's a lot of people there. So he uh, turns around, this lady bows down, she admits, I'm the one that touched you, and she confessed what she had done. She witnesses to the fact that indeed uh, she was instantly healed. Jesus encourages her, and he says to her, take courage, your faith has saved you. Now, this might imply that there had been an association with sin for whatever this problem was, but it not necessarily, it doesn't have to. Either way, she was healed. And it was an amazing day of faith for her. Look what happens because she believed. Let that soak in. Look what happened because she believed. Then Peter, dumbfounded at what the Lord had said. I want to point this out because I just I love Peter to death. <laughs> Imagine you're walking along with Jesus, we're in a hurry, got a little girl to raise from the dead. All of a sudden, something happens. Nobody really knows except Jesus. Something happens, and then uh, he uh, turns around and says, somebody's been healed. Well, in Luke chapter 8, another synoptic uh, account, verses 43 and 45. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone, she came up behind him and touched him on the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, who, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, uh, uh, Master, um, excuse me, you've noticed that there's hundreds of people <laughs> crowding around you, and you want to know who touched me? Is that right? Seriously? And Jesus was serious. And yeah, there are hundreds of people around. But something got Jesus' attention. What got his attention? Faith. Faith. Do you and I, do you and I want to get Jesus' attention? We should try faith. Faith. That's what saves us and that's what gets us through life. Well, I brought this up about Peter to make a point. Lots of people, lots of people were crowding around Jesus. But only one stopped him in his tracks because she had faith. I'm pretty sure Jesus is busy every day in heaven. I, I don't know how he does it. We could, have, we could have a million and a half people praying at the same time, and it's all individual, and he knows. So he's God. He can do, do this. But here in the flesh, all these people, one person got his attention by faith. So I asked the question, what is everybody else doing with Jesus? I'm shocked that people didn't mob the, the poor guy all the time just to touch him, just to touch him. This woman steps out in a crowd of hundreds and shows her faith. You see, the reason you approach Jesus and how you do it makes all the difference in the world. Let me rephrase that. The reason you approach Jesus and how you do it 
makes all the difference in your world and in mine. Do you want Jesus to make a difference for you in your life? Well, yeah, we would all say, yes, we do. Now in verses 23 to 26. Well, Jesus finally makes it to Jairus' house, the official, and he saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. See, the professional mourners have shown up. The people that play the flutes and the women that scream and holler and yell and cry because they're paid to do so are at the house. And Jesus says, leave, for the girl has not died. Everybody knows that she has died but is asleep. See, Jesus looks at death differently than we do. And they began, we could say, mocking him and laughing at him. Uh, These people knew when somebody was dead, right? But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl rose up, and this news spread throughout the land. So because of a parent's faith, Jesus raises a 12-year-old little girl to life. Now, I guess the little girl had been dead for a few minutes at least, and that's no issue for Jesus. Remember uh, when Lazarus died, Jesus took an extra day before he got there. And Jesus came into the man's house, and already the Jewish funeral crew was in full swing. The hired flute players and professional mourners are already wailing and falling on the ground and writhing in pain. And we're to understand that these uh, professionals believe with all their hearts the girl is dead. That's why God had them show up. So somebody could say, somebody couldn't say, you know what? Jesus didn't really raise the little girl from the dead. She was really, really still alive. No, she's not. And kids today would say, you know, if you ask them, well, is she dead? They say, no, she was dead, dead. If they say dead, dead twice, that means that she's really dead. And that's what she was. But faith has not yet had its turn in this house. Hmm. Every day we need to ask, has faith had a turn with me today? Well, he basically makes the mourners leave the house. That's going to be easier on the parents either way. I think it's for their sake. Most of all, let's get these people out of here. This is not going to be a, a funeral dirge. And the people thought him ridiculous. They began laughing at him. And I think this was Jesus' way of saying that this is a temporary condition for your little girl. Then in verse 25, the mockers removed. Jesus, the parents, and some select disciples go into her room. And Jesus takes the dead girl's hand, and she gets up. And the news, like it always does, spreads throughout the land. But still, Jesus could have crowds of people around him that don't even give it a second thought that maybe I could touch him in faith and get something. The news spread, but was it the news that should have spread? I want to leave you with some application here. Number one, people with faith or people of faith pursue Jesus and his help. Pursue Jesus and his help. Uh, We have an illustration of that right here in our own church. I don't know how many years ago it was, four years ago, uh, Barbara was at home because John had taken, I think, his mom or dad to the hospital up in Kearney, and their, uh, their adult uh, foster child decided to kill her that day. You remember that? 
and uh, I couldn't, couldn't remember if our kids would be with us or not, so I won't go into any details, but he worked for hours trying to put her to death, trying to hang her, strangle her, beat her. She ends up finally making it out on the road. Somebody found her and helped her. In the meantime, the young person took off, and we all know that that ended in a, quite, a, quite a tragic issue. But all the time, if you ask Barbara about it, she'll, she'll share it with you. She got through that, how would you guess? Faith. Basically crying out to Jesus. What did Jesus do? He was there for her. And she didn't give up. It went on for a few hours. She didn't give up. She kept her faith. And we're so glad you did. So people with faith pursue Jesus and his help in the middle of some terrible times when you need Jesus. Let that be an example to us. And secondly, faith is the critical element when approaching Jesus for help. Faith is the critical element in approaching Jesus for help. Now we've learned that Jesus doesn't put on a show for people who just demand, you know, give me a show here of a miracle and I will... uh, you know, be your follower. Jesus doesn't perform like that, no. But Matthew nineteen twenty six says this. And looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. There's never a reason in any situation where you shouldn't have faith. There's never a reason in any difficulty or even a joyous time where you shouldn't have faith because there's nothing there ever that Jesus can't handle whether it's a little girl that has died or whether it's a woman who's been uh, unable to be healed for years and years and years or somebody whose life is in danger. Nothing's impossible with God. Thirdly, faith also accepts Jesus' decision and allows him to be sovereign in every case and allows him to be sovereign in every case. Having said that, Dr. Craig Blomberg uh, chimed in here and said, praiseworthy faith does not doubt God's ability to act, okay, that's what faith does, doesn't doubt God's ability to act, but it does not presume to know how he will choose to act. And I think Barbara accepted that that day. Didn't know how it was going to turn out, but she put herself in God's hands, and God God saved her. You think he's just going to do that for her, or will he do it for you? Faith is the victory. And finally, people will not be disappointed for recognizing Jesus for who he is and seeking him out. You won't be disappointed for recognizing who Jesus is and seeking him out. I am trying to encourage you today that what we all need is faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm talking to people who are believers, who know Christ as their Savior. I want to end with this verse, and I hope it stays with you. Hebrews 11.6. I don't think that's in your bulletin, but you could write it there. And it says, and that without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now listen to this part. For he who comes to God, or she who comes to God, anybody who comes to God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. Just remember the lady with the hemorrhage. She wanted the reward of God's power. And she said the way is faith. And she was right.
Let's pray together, shall we? I want to thank you, Heavenly Father, that in a world where we often feel like we have no power, we have no way of protecting ourselves, we have no way of making things right, uh, then, then you remind us of faith. And you remind us of the power of faith. And it's powerful because of the one we put our faith in. And I just ask that you would be with us, Lord Jesus. Uh, whatever the days are going to bring as we uh, continue on your plan for the end of days, that we would be people of faith and that we would count on you. And it's not going to happen this way, but if we were to see you in a crowd, no matter how big it is, we want you to know that we are the kind of people that will do whatever it takes to get to you because we seek the reward that you have, which is eternal life and life now. We thank you in your precious name. Amen.